0: can't revise for English. Yes you can. Mark Roberts shows you how. Welcome to episode two of You Can't Revise for English. Yes you can and Mark Roberts shows you how. How are you doing Mark? Are you excited about this one?
1: I am very excited, yeah. It's a, it's a really special guest that we've got this evening. I'm very much looking forward to hearing everything he's got to say about this exciting text that we've chosen today.
0: I did suggest uh, on Twitter earlier that uh, we had a very special guest this evening and somebody came back and said, is it the writer himself? Um, that, that, would be, that would be something special if we managed to get the writer of Macbeth in, but I think we've got the next best thing. Do you want to tell people who our special guest is today and then uh, introduce him?
1: Yes, so today's guest is Stuart Pryke, uh, who as well as being an English teacher, is also uh, the author of A a Guide to Macbeth, which is aimed at teachers, Uh, it's called Ready to Teach. Uh, and it's a, a compendium of, of different elements of everything that, that teachers need to know about the text to be able to successfully teach it to students. And I'm sure that any students out there who are listening to this podcast who want to get ahead and want to, to find out the kind of juicy nuggets about this text. Uh, would also be interested in getting the hands on the copy as well um so yeah, very pleased to welcome Stuart uh, with us uh, and really looking forward to talking about this particular extract which he has chosen
2: thank you yeah thank you for inviting me on um yeah, not Shakespeare himself, but hopefully i'll uh, I'll do a good job
0: of talking about his play. <laughs> So before we get into Macbeth and, and and all that we'd like to start with a sort of general promotion of reading question. Um so what what was the book that sort of sparked your love of literature or or a book that you'd you'd encourage students to go and read in order to try and uh, get a bit more out of of literature. What what what's your go to?
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good question and um for me it it might be a little cliche in some respects but um George Orwell's 1984 was one of the first times I think I realised just how terrifying literature can be um, and really kind of sparked my love of literature and, you know, really made me want to go and study literature more. Um, I think in terms of that book, the best dystopias are the ones that can be viewed through the lens of modern day and still be recognisable. And I think that's exactly the world that Orwell has created, um, you know, in that kind of totalitarian superstate that he describes. Um, and as a student as well it's just ripe for dissection, isn't it? um it, you know it throws us into a situation where we're forced to tackle the complexities of opposing ideologies it It teaches us to be inquisitive about the world around us to challenge what we're being told whilst being wary of the dangers of of i don't know denialism um and it might be a bit bleak, but I think that's what draws us to it and I think if we think of literature um as a study of the human condition Um, then we're often drawn to texts where characters are placed under extreme duress and uh, you know depictions of unpleasant imaginary societies are part of what we're drawn to and you know we like seeing how characters navigate these hostile worlds that authors have created Um, so yeah for me 1984 is is such a great book and and it's one that I read as I was approaching a level and it's it's one I revisit often and discover something new each time
0: Oh, well, that's it's really interesting there, and actually, you've given me a nice segue into Shakespeare because you talked about um, the best literature being about the human condition, and that's arguably one of the reasons why Shakespeare is still as popular as as, as he always has been. Um, is because he creates plays that we can all still relate to.
2: Oh, very much so. I mean, if you just look at the the themes of Macbeth, um, I think the most major theme there is is the idea of ambition. And I think really that's one of the reasons why his play endures is because we've all felt ambition. And I think to some extent, we've all felt those sorts of negative emotions when our goals don't come to fruition in the way that we hoped, um, if at all. And, you know, these characters are, are relatable and while we might not react in the same way that Macbeth and Lady Macbeth do, um, I think we've all felt those emotions that they've felt too. And and yeah, that's why that play is 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 one that students and and, uh, teachers revisit year after year.
0: Awesome right well let's get stuck into it then. You've chosen um, as the extract that you'd, you'd like to delve into with us this evening a section from Act 4 uh, Scene 3. Um, specifically uh, it's the sort of the entrance and the doc- of the Doctor and Malcolm discussing Edward uh, to Macduff. Can I ask why you've chosen that passage?
2: Yeah I think it's a a really interesting and pivotal moment in the play and one that students don't tend to refer to that much um, in exam answers and it's a small moment, really small, but it's one that's really easy to miss. Um, but Malcolm asks a doctor about Edward the Confessor's whereabouts um, and obviously Edward is the the King of England and I really like this moment. I think this brief reference to Edward is, is really clever on Shakespeare's part because This is the moment where he's manoeuvred Edward to be Macbeth's true opposite. I think we naturally jump to analyse Macduff as Macbeth's antithesis. Yet there are probably more, Macbeth and Macduff are probably more similar than we give them credit for. Um, Both are violent. I think both are desensitised to the violence they commit. And both commit regicide as well. I, I don't think we can be under any doubt that Macduff's execution of Macbeth at the end of the play is regicide. Both make mistakes. They're both punished. Whereas Edward is the true mark of a king and I think for the first time audiences can finally appreciate the vastness of this spectrum of morality that Shakespeare has constructed throughout the play and on the one side we have Macbeth and he's kind of wallowing in his damnation and on the other we have King Edward who was known for his devout holiness and he's really the figure of what a true king should be. So I like this moment in the play because it really allows us to make strong Kind of inferences about what a king should be and it allows us to make some some good comparisons between the two.
1: It's, it's fascinating that you, you respond to the, this part of the play in, in, in such a positive, excited way though, Stuart. I, I was reading, you said often that st- students don't refer to this. It's something that critics tend not to focus on very often as well. I, I, was, I was looking through uh, a few uh, critics of, that are favourites of mine uh, today while we were thinking about this particular extract. Uh, and I saw that Frank Commode called it, this particular scene, a long and curious lull. Uh, and he said it, that some critics see this as a, even as a blemish on the play. Um, it, it's bizarre that, that some tend to write it off and see it as almost kind of like a, an in-between scene that's a bit of a, a kind of um, respite and a bit of a, a kind of dragged out, drawn out um, particular nothing scene in some ways. Um, And and it's interesting, why is it that students don't focus on this? Why is it that teachers tend to gloss over it and and critics even tend to be a little bit dismissive of it? I think it's
2: because Macbeth is such a pacey play. If you look at the the action that occurs throughout Act 1, Act 2 and Act 3, everything is really quick. It's it's one of his shortest plays. And then suddenly you have this one scene which has been dropped in to end Act 4. And it's very long. It's very political, I think, as well. You know, it's that politics... Of this world that Shakespeare has created is something that he avoids really up until this moment. And I think it's quite jarring in that sense. Yet when we look at it and we kind of really break it down and we we think about what that scene includes, we can learn some there are some real gems in there that are ripe for that analysis and ripe for discussion and really help our understanding of the rest of the play as a whole. But I think maybe it's that political angle that Shakespeare's going for that doesn't appeal as much. And I think that's harder for students to understand as well. And so that's what makes it avoidable in that sense. But if we listen to what Macduff is saying about the state of Scotland, we really begin to appreciate Macbeth for the tyrant that he is. If we consider Malcolm and you know his testing of Macduff, you know that raises some questions as well Malcolm I don't think is is the most trustworthy figure that he's sometimes presented to um, presented out to be you know he lies to Macduff about um, kind of who he is as a person and yet he is the king that will end up on the throne by the end of the play and I think again that's quite interesting for you know for students to, to think about and for teachers to think about um, because it suggests that it's might not be a complete happy ending that
0: Everyone is after. That's that's quite interesting. What you said there, because that 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 puts this conversation that we're going to look at into context of the scene. There's a lot going on in this scene, as we said. It's a long scene, and it really does go up and down because you've got you've got Malcolm's weird, not weird testing, but testing of Macduff in order to uh, prove himself so he can trust him. Then you've got the stuff about what makes a good king. And then the scene finishes with this examination of masculinity, which I think that tends to be the bit of this scene that I focus on when I teach it. Um, because we see a human side of Macduff. Um, and, and the way that Malcolm to- tells him to accept it as a man and all those sorts of things is really interesting, uh, particularly through the, the lens of, of modern masculinity. Um, but you've chosen this section just before that. On Edward, and I I want to focus briefly on this question of what makes a good king, because we've had Malcolm talk about that in quite some detail in this scene. Um, Do you want to just sort of sum up what where where that's coming from and why Shakespeare might have included that?
2: Yeah, I think Shakespeare includes it because obviously the only king that we have uh, come across in the play so far is, apart from Macbeth obviously, is King Duncan. Now King Duncan is a good man but I think he is quite a weak king. You know we open the play and his country is being invaded and he's too trusting as well and that's what um, his downfall is. And so up until this moment we don't actually really know what makes a good king and so I think it's important for Shakespeare to include this in the play because we now need someone to root for. and so we're now rooting for Malcolm to take the throne. And the fact that Malcolm knows the qualities of what makes a good king as well would suggest to us that he's kind of prepared to, to take the throne. And, you know, we, we want Macduff to, to kill Macbeth so that Malcolm can, you know, take his
0: rightful place on, on the throne and, and restore the great chain of being to to order. But That's important though, isn't it? Because uh, Shakespeare can't really have Malcolm's first act to be an act of regicide. He needs to be pure when he takes the throne, isn't it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's you know that's why he has Macduff kill Macbeth so that Malcolm can start off, you know, his reign as you say in this pure way. Yet also, you know, Malcolm has lied. Malcolm lies in Act Four, Scene Three, um, to Macduff as to what kind of man he is. And I think that doesn't come without its consequences either, because we as an audience can never really trust purely what he what he says now. Um, so, you know, the play ends, Macbeth dies, um, everything has been kind of restored, order has been restored as such. And yet there's still just this small kind of thought, I think, in the back of the audience's minds that actually, you know, Malcolm could quite easily become the tyrant that Macbeth has become. And I think that that's important. I think in, in Malcolm's character, we've, we've got Shakespeare saying you can either become a good king or you can become a tyrant and it's really easy to fall into the negative
1: if, if you look at the, the fact you talk about the audience there and and we we have a, a strong assumption that this is performed for the benefit of, of king james uh, and and that he's very much a, a primary um driver in in, in this kind of plot and shakespeare's decision to to revisit uh this original source um It's not a particularly flattering portrayal of Scotland, is it? I mean, Scotland and and the throne seems quite chaotic. Um, You know, right from the outset, there's a threat to Duncan before Macbeth. Uh, And as you say, at the end, we've got these kind of questions about the stability of of Scotland and the Scottish throne. Um, Why do you think that Shakespeare's bringing these kind of elements in if he's trying to appeal to to James? What do you think's going on there?
2: I think maybe he's trying to appeal to James more as as a person, as a king, as an individual. I mean, the the qualities that Malcolm lists as to what makes a good king is very much pretty similar to um, a text that James I wrote for his son, um, almost kind of coaching him in the way of what a king should be like. And so when we have Shakespeare creating these moments where he's... You know appealing to James the First, it's very much
0: about King James the First's views rather than his kingship. A question for either of you here Do we know if, if James the First claimed to heal in the same way that Edward the Confessor is, is presented as being able to heal? Here is that something that's um, particularly pointed?
2: Yeah, I think he did. Um, I think he was a little bit more sceptical about it, but it was he was said to have practiced. Um, the king's touch to heal people of their their illness so again yeah you've got this idea that edward is made out to be this very very pious character in this pious king um and so from a light by aligning james with edward you know edward is this model king and so again you've got shakespeare very much playing up to james here um and you know saying you you are like edward you are you are the model
0: king you are the, the king
2: um
0: a country needs what, one of the things that leapt Out when I revisited this extract in preparation for today was that Edward is linked to heaven three times in a very short space of time uh, by by Malcolm. Sorry, once by the Doctor and twice by Malcolm. Um, And I felt that that was interesting given the amount of times that Macbeth has linked himself with hell.
2: I find that interesting. I find that whole thing about heaven and hell fascinating in Macbeth because, as you say, Edward is linked to heaven uh, three times, I think it is, and um, there's a very definite kind of New Testament um, allusion, I think, around Edward. This It very much alludes to um, Christ healing the sick. I think that's in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and Edward is doing the exact same thing. And why I find this fascinating is because as you say Macbeth links himself to hell but he is also concerned throughout this whole play about what God and heaven is going to think of him. Um, You know it's part of the reason why he calls for darkness and and why Lady Macbeth calls for darkness throughout the entire play it's A so that they can't they can almost feign innocence I think as to their actions but there's this idea that heaven and God won't be able to see what they're doing and they're very concerned with getting into heaven and so you, you wonder why Macbeth a constantly links himself to hell and b doesn't try and practice what a model king would be like as such um so i think there is a a deliberate allusion to that heaven and hell um here and the fact that it's so concentrated as well as you say edward's linked to to heaven three times in this very small moment in the play um it's it's showing that there's no doubt i think that the fact that Edward is pious, the fact he'll get into to heaven, um, there's no doubt about that. Whereas with Macbeth, there's no doubt that he will now venture into hell.
1: It's really interesting listening to you talk about this. And I've been having a look through, through Harold Bloom um, and his, his essay on Macbeth, which I always found fascinating. Some of the assertions he makes um, are really interesting. And there's one bit where he says that um, other Shakespearean kind of hero villains, the likes of Richard III and Iago. Uh, they seem to delight in their wickedness, that whereas he argues that Macbeth suffers from knowing that he does the evil and that he's got to go on and carry on perpetuating this kind of evil. Um, and it's interesting when we see the journey of, of Macbeth, who's someone who is um, criticised as being too full of the milk of human kindness by his wife, uh, and but then still... Is seen as this kind of bloodthirsty tyrant. It's a very interesting uh, journey. I just I wonder what you make of Bloom's idea that there's there's something different about Macbeth that we're we're drawn to in a in a slightly different way than we would be Iago or Richard III.
2: I think just because he's he's a tortured soul, isn't he Macbeth? And I think there are moments as well where you can begin to where he could redeem himself as such. and he never chooses that path of redemption. He always chooses the path to more blood. You know, he says blood will have blood and he's caught in that kind of cyclical nature of of violence. And again, I think that descent into violence, I think is, is Shakespeare's focus throughout the entire play. You know, really showing how humans can suffer through their own guilt and, and through what they've done and teaching us to be wary of our actions. Um, you know, he places the torture of Macbeth front and center um, in this kind of harsh world that he's created and i think again you can link that back itself to edward the confessor scene because we never see edward the confessor he's only mentioned and so we're distanced from that goodness um whereas we are placed front and center you know in front of that evil which again i think is really really interesting goodness is is um it's very elusive in the play
1: so last episode we were talking about um Jekyll and Hyde and we're talking about how we, we see within us um, Jekyll within all of us, is, is that something that we, we see an element of Macbeth with, within us? Do, do we in some ways very reluctantly recognise parts of our human condition within him?
2: I think so, I think we recognise the mistakes that we've made, um, I think it forces us to reflect on those mistakes as well um, as I mentioned earlier we have that idea about ambition. We all have ambitions, we all have goals, we all have these things that we want to achieve in life and they may not be as grand as Macbeth's but the the general kind of principle and those general feelings are the same. I think we all have that good side of us and we all have that evil side of us and I think it's about what side we want to show and how we're going to translate our thoughts into action and what that would look like in reality. Um, Macbeth translates his, his thoughts into violence you know his his ambitions manifest themselves as violence um but the play is a warning isn't it so i guess it's this idea that shakespeare is telling us we are all capable of doing these things we all have this negativity and this this kind of violence inside of us but it's about turning it into something good you know and working for a force for good
0: that's particularly interesting when we look specifically at this extract because the disease that the doctor mentions Malcolm calls evil and Edward is 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 held up as curing this this disease is the suggestion there that a pious king like Edward could be the cure for Scotland of the evil of Macbeth
2: yeah I think so it's it's certainly what Shakespeare is alluding to I think but again I think the fact that we never see it firsthand um, implies that it's going to be harder for it's harder to bring Scotland out of this this violence that it's suffering from Edward in the play is, is kind of grace itself and you know he, he very much presides over Malcolm and the future of Scotland because Malcolm is the future of Scotland just as the witches preside over Macbeth that's what Scotland needs in order to to heal it needs a king like Edward and Edward in a sense I guess is almost coaching Malcolm in how to be that good king so he's ready to ascend to the throne.
1: Yeah, I, I was just going to say that as, as as well as the the goodness that you get from from Edward, you've also got this sense of this in English salvation as well, isn't it? This idea that England will come to the rescue, and, and and there's there's something very interesting in terms of the political things we were talking about earlier.
2: Yeah, very much so. Um, again, just this idea of Shakespeare kind of playing up to James the First and what James the First would be would be capable of as King of England and Scotland, and. Um, it's interesting, I often I often read this play and wonder actually what would James the First think of it, whether Shakespeare was successful in his attempts to uh what should we say, cater to James the First's um Flatter, isn't needs. it? It's
0: flattery, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. That that's ultimately what it's about.
2: Yeah, I just wonder if it worked. I wonder if uh, I wonder if James the First kind of understood it and um realised
0: <laughs> that's what Shakespeare was trying to do. Can I take the disease analogy a stage further that Malcolm describes the the people coming to see Edward as swollen and ulcerous and pitiful to the eye are, are we to to take from that that that's how uh, Malcolm and Macduff are seeing Scotland at this stage as well can we can we extend it that far
2: yeah i think so because i think there's um if you look from the very beginning of the play you have this imagery of infection and disease um you know even from act 1 scene 1 where the witches say, um, you know, hover through the fog and filthy air. You have this idea of air that's supposed to be pure. It's supposed to be life-giving, and yet it's filthy. It's been corrupted. Um, it's it's been polluted in a sense. So we already have an idea that you know Scotland is is falling to this disease of violence and and the supernatural from the very beginning. Um, you see it again when Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are washing their hands. Um, they say a little water clears us of this deed. Again, water, something which is pure, something which is um, life-giving, and they're now tainting it with their blood and they're, they're turning that water into blood. And so here I think, yeah, you've got this this imagery of this disease and this infection. Um, but this is the first time, I think the only th- the thing that's different here is it's the first time really that it's been healed, it's been fixed. Whereas before we've been provided with these images of pollution and infection. And Shakespeare has just left them to linger. They're, they're never resolved as such. Whereas here we have a people who are suffering and Edward is, is actively healing them. I guess you could even take that analogy even further. You could take the idea that Macbeth is causing the disease, is causing the infection of Scotland. Whereas what Edward does is actively tries to heal it and tries to um, rectify it. And again, you've then got the comparison between Macbeth as this king that's associated with disease and violence, um, whereas Edward is associated with this idea of, of healing.
0: One other little phrase jumped at me from this extract towards the end of it, and I, I think it's interesting that it's, it's kind of just dropped in um, and not explored, but he, Malcolm describes Edward as having the heavenly gift of prophecy. Bearing in mind everything that's gone before and how important prophecy is to Macbeth and, and the, the ongoing debate about the witch's role in, in all of this... Why does he suggest that Edward has has the heavenly gift of prophecy?
2: Do you know what? It's That's an interesting question. Um, and I'm not entirely sure that I have a a kind of concrete answer to that. But I think part of it maybe links back to how devout Edward is and how religious he is. Um, and, you know, people would believe that he could talk directly to God. It's interesting because actually that's a similarity, isn't it, between Edward and, and Macbeth? Um I think the idea here, though, is that Edward has a gift of prophecy, whereas Macbeth is the victim of prophecies. Um, but I think maybe it's it's to do with his the way that he's accepted God and religion into his life, and he leads his life through God's teachings. You know, the, the fact that people would believe that he could speak directly to God. Maybe that's kind of where that more prophetic angle to him comes from. Um, but it's 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 interesting, isn't it, how Edward listens to God, and that's that kind of supernatural element of it, whereas Macbeth very much listens to the witches. Um, You know, Macbeth could still live his life through this supernatural sense if he listened to God, but he doesn't, he listens to these foul creatures instead.
1: It seems tied to to uh, edward's legitimacy doesn't it this idea that he's got this direct channel to god because of his rightfulness on the throne as opposed to, to macbeth kind of stealing it through the regicide there's something else that's interesting in terms of the language in, in this little uh, extract and we get the repetition of strangely and strange and i suppose that ties back into the the, the kind of supernatural elements to begin with the the people who are afflicted with these uh, terrible uh, illnesses uh, are seen as strangely visited, so strangely afflicted. Um, whereas Edward's got this strange virtue, uh, and there's something interesting there about this this almost supernatural element that, that, albeit tied in Edward's case to to something religious. I was thinking about virtue. I, I found out something interesting recently that the etymology of virtue. Um, is tied back it goes beyond this idea of moral perfection and originally uh, in latin it means man uh, which i didn't know until very recently so this idea about not only his, his closeness his proximity uh, to god and the way that he's able to enact this but also re- reasserting this idea of his manliness which i suppose gives us an interesting um antithesis to to ideas about Macbeth at times where Macbeth seems to have this this kind of question over his uh, manliness as well so there's some other potential interesting ideas there about the language for us to to look into
2: this is why I chose this extract is because you know you have he's a complete parallel to Macbeth whereas you know Macduff as I said before is is very much um is very similar to to Macbeth, Edward is completely different.
0: Would it be fair to say if you've got e- Edward, that's the exact antithesis, and Macduff, who, who although often taught to be the antithesis of the anti-Macbeth, if you like, the heroic Macbeth, is actually quite similar in a lot of ways. Is is Malcolm the the happy medium, the the Goldilocks of kings? Is that um, sort of picking that middle ground?
2: I guess so. I think so. yeah, I think so. But I I think again, there's that warning that he could go either way. Um and you know, by the end of the play, you know, he talks about bringing back all of those who have been exiled from Scotland. He talks about bringing them back. He talks about how um, he's going to restore Scotland to what it was um, so it would seem that actually he's chosen the path of the king. He's chosen Edward's path instead of Macbeth's path um, but there's I don't know, there's still something about him that I'm not that I don't entirely trust, especially because if if he has been tutored as such by Edward, the fact that we never see Edward, um, kind of suggests that the his ideas and his ideals are at a remove from the reality that these characters are living in and so we have to put our faith in Malcolm at the end but you know Malcolm the fact he lies to Macduff that remains unchallenged you know that's never picked up again um, he gets away with that and I think the fact that he gets away with it raises further
0: questions as to just what sort of king he will be that's really, really interesting. Um, I suppose the only other question really to, to come out of this section, Stuart, that I, that I think people might want to explore is we've got the imagery of, of, of the hand again being used here, which crops up a lot um, in, in the play. Um, why now does, uh, does Shakespeare give us more hand imagery?
2: Well, I think the motif of hands in Macbeth is is something that's really, really important and exciting to track, actually. Um, You know, hands can be an incredibly dangerous weapon, I think. Um, You know, they're the things that translate our thoughts into action. Um, And so if we look at how hands are used in Act One, um, I think they're very much associated with loyalty as such. You know, Macbeth... um, fights in the battle that he's fighting in at the beginning out of loyalty for Duncan and you know he's committing violence and he's committing violent acts um, but they're done out of loyalty and as soon as we hit act two we see that Hans um, turning almost into a symbol of betrayal suddenly they're not working for Duncan they're working against him and they're used to kill him um, and we see very much the same thing in act three as well obviously when he uh Macbeth he doesn't do it himself but he issues the order for for Banquo to be killed um and so we have this very much this kind of negative imagery surrounding hands and yet here we we see that hands can be used for a force for good and it, it makes sense doesn't it i think if hands are a dangerous weapon and can be used for these kind of negative means they can also be used for good as well and i think that that's what shakespeare wants to do here with edward he's showing that goodness can exist and it does remain elusive because he doesn't because he doesn't appear um but here we're you know the motif of hands changes so that we're seeing um the good that can be done with them and it's those hands that you know they're they're healing the people the sick people of england um but they will also be used under malcolm hopefully um to heal a sick scotland and you know by this point we're coming to the end of the play as well and it's been very bleak and very dark and i think by this point we need we need a bit of hope um you know we need that tragedy almost to resolve itself and so that's why shakespeare begins to change um that motif of hands from betrayal and violence into something uh more pure and then by the end of the play obviously macduff kills Macbeth out of a sense of loyalty and so hands have kind of been restored back to what they were at the
0: beginning of the play. That's been absolutely fascinating and I've got to be honest, I've I've, I've learnt quite a bit this evening. <laughs> I've always treated Act 4, Scene 3 as something to skim through as quickly as possible, highlight a couple of interesting points um, and, and move on to the, to the climax of the play. But as you've explained to us this evening, there's so much you can unpick and I suppose that just goes to show the... The depth that you can look at Shakespeare in, and there's always something fresh to to extrapolate from it. Isn't that the case?
2: Yeah, I think you know the more I read this play, the more I get out of it. And actually, I think if something is is broken down enough for us to really understand it, um, it just decreases the threat, doesn't it? And I, you know, I was very much like you. I I did not like Act Four, Scene Three. Um, The more reading I did around it, and the more research I did, the more I thought actually this this is a uh, a scene which contains so much so much you could talk about it I mean we've only spoken about that small really small extract um, but you could talk about it for hours about Act 4 Scene 3 I think and there's there's so much there
1: You've put forward a very good case for not seeing it as a, a long and curious lull. absolutely you've put forward a case for this being a fascinating extract so thanks for choosing it Yeah thank you
0: Right, Mark, we're going to finish with uh, another of your uh, top tips. What's your revision tip this week?
1: Stuart's just given an absolutely outstanding example of it, uh, and it wasn't planned like this, so I'm really pleased he's he's teed it up in this way. But one thing I wanted to get students to think about is this idea, when you're thinking about learning quotations, um, and, and often students focus I think too much on this idea if you if you get a question where there's an extract and then you have to think about the rest of the play and and what's really important is thinking about tracking these kind of motifs these kind of um, images and ideas like Stuart's just done with hands across the play or across the novel uh, and helping you to think about structure as well as individual bits of language. So that's something that I would spend a, lot, a large part of my revision of literature texts thinking about: is is trying to be able to track certain ideas, themes, images uh, across. And, and planning that as part of my answer because it really allows me, as I say, to address both language and structure in a more sophisticated way.
0: Yeah, we've got to get students to understand the the, the idea of a motif, haven't we? I think that that they're they they're so crucial, particularly in Shakespeare. And as as um, I, I bang on about how how blood, hands, and guilt are just intrinsically linked through this play, and that's the sort of thing that we need we need students to really grasp, isn't it? If they're going to understand how how Shakespeare works at this level
1: absolutely yeah vital that, that we think about motifs it, it is, as i say it covers language and structure perfectly. Yeah.
0: okay well this has been an absolute joy uh, i hope you've enjoyed listening stuart i want to say a heartfelt thank you for joining us and giving up your time it was an absolute pleasure to have you on and hopefully we can do it again sometime thank you i really enjoyed it thanks for inviting me on
1: thank you thanks Stuart.
0: and to everybody else thanks for listening and um we'll see you next time cheers Can't revise for English? Yes, you can.